my ideal world is that everybody takes a little bit of inspiration from from scientists as far as how to have um, discourse, right? I'm not saying an ideal world is where everyone gets along. No, no one's going to get along all the time. But an ideal world is if you approach a problem a little bit more scientifically, understanding that scientists also could have some you know, bias that you interject. You have to understand that there's everybody has inherent bias. But if you want to approach it from the sense that, like, okay, let's ask the right questions, let's come together, let's have an open mind, um, that is what my ideal world is, that the world kind of becomes smaller, that we all understand a little bit more about each other and have discourse in a healthy way. I'm Kimberly Drew, and you're listening to Your Attention, Please, a Hulu podcast with iHeartRadio. When I was younger, I thought I wanted to be an engineer. I was so fascinated by the ways in which engineers build bridges between people on the everyday and scientific information. So being able to talk to a real-life engineer who's doing that work, but on an interplanetary level, I'm so stoked. Today, I'll be talking to Mujige Cooper. She is a scientist, a scholar, She's also so young that it kind of scares me. Getting prepared for today's interview, I just kept thinking about how many things Mujige must know and be thinking about consistently on a day-to-day basis. We're talking super duper brains here. And more than that, Mujige is so invested in reaching out to so many other people to invite them into the world of science. Mujige has been immersed in math, science, computers, and space since she was a teenager. Today, she works as a planetary protection engineer, which means she makes sure Earth and other planets don't get contaminated when we go to space. In other words, she's not just saving the world, she's saving the entire universe. So, if she could have your attention, please, our guest today, Mujige Cooper. My name is Mujige Cooper, and I am a planetary protection engineer. The work that you do is so incredible because I think a lot of us lay people, non-sciencers, we know about space travel, but we don't know about the intricacies that go into getting out there. And I wonder if you could talk about the work that you do specifically in terms of protecting both environments beyond and then protecting people who are here on Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's a really big idea if you think about it in the universal scale, but people have been doing it on several scales just here on Earth, right? You go through TSA, you're trying to travel to another country and they make sure that your fruits and vegetables that you bring back doesn't contain something that may harm the the destination that you're going to. So in a sense, that's somewhat of a planetary protection on a smaller scale, on an Earth scale. And when you scale that up, you really have to understand when you're sending spacecraft out into different planets or moons, you have to make sure that it doesn't contain some earth microbe that may in fact negatively affect uh, any possible ecosystem. How do you remain optimistic in the work that you're doing? Because I feel like you know so much, like your job is to kind of know everything, anticipate so much. How do you maintain what seems like such a positive energy about all the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's an active process. Um, I, I think 
if I look at the team members around me, I mean, it takes a village to do something. If, if someone says I did this and I did that, well, that's not hundred percent accurate. You know, it takes a village to get things accomplished. And when I look at my team, that's what keeps me positive. They're the, the future. They're eventually going to be bosses on their own projects. And so that really keeps me optimistic and positive because whatever I'm feeling negative about today is going to change tomorrow. Mm. And what does that look like outside of a work environment? Do you have, I know that you're an athlete as well. Um, what are some of the other ways in which you like keep yourself inspired and curious in the world? Yeah. Uh, one person that I think of, um, she actually happens to work for NPR, Sharon McNary. She is my inspiration. Uh, she Back in the day, I used to not know how to swim and not know how to ride a bike. And I still, it's arguable, I still kind of don't. But (laughs) I used the world of triathlons to get over those fears and really learn how to do that. But I was still afraid I couldn't tread water. And here comes Sharon and she's like, why don't you do a triathlon? I said, well, because I can't tread water. I feel like I'm going to drown. Well, there's this race that if you feel scared, swim to the edge and stand up. Well, shoot, I have no excuse. (laughs) So I love other people that break down the excuses that I have that check me and call me out and say, no, you do not have a reason to not do X, Y, and Z. Push yourself. So I love finding other people that do that for me and do that to other people. But I see that a lot in the triathlon field because I do have this fear. I do have to push myself out of my comfort zone to really achieve something bigger than myself. Yeah. One of the things that I find most remarkable about your story is your ability to articulate it to other people. And it's just so powerful because I was like last night when I was thinking about coming here today, I was so intimidated and so worried and just like, oh, she's so smart. And I hope I have good questions. Um, I wonder for you, and and I know that you're really driven by inspiration. um, If you could talk about your desire, if there is a desire to be Um, almost like a liaison to the work that you're doing for people who might have a curiosity or might have doubt. Yeah, I I love, I mean, my passion, especially growing up, not having as much uh, people that believed in me. I mean, enough people believed in me for me to be where I am. So I'm happy and thankful for that. But I know that there were kids around me that didn't have that person. So I love outreach, especially talking to middle school, elementary school aged kids where they are in their formative years where if something bad happens, it can really have a huge impact in their life. And so, yeah, I would love to be a liaison. I try to do that as much as I can, you know, despite all of the time that I have to take for work. Um, but yeah, I, that's kind of the, my duty. There's something that I owe to the next generation is to inspire them, whether or not to be a scientist or or something else. I don't care if, if I talk to some kids and no one wants to be a scientist, but someone's like, you know what? I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an artist. I want to be something else. I just want them to just be inspired, period. I so relate to that. Yeah. Because I think oftentimes too, and in, so my background is in the arts, of course, there's so much that can be lost if you don't get that spark early on. Like just the way that our education system is set up, you have to be constantly learning. You have to, you know, start pushing yourself or you feel like you're running a race you can never win. Exactly. And yeah, it's not always saying like, hey, come be a curator. It's like, no. just be, like yeah. be inspired to be, to see that light coming out of someone. And that light is so abundantly bright for you. Definitely. Oh, I try. <laughs> <laughs> 
can you talk a bit about putting together your video, which I love oh. so much? I, I mean, there are so many people behind it that just took what I said and like put these visuals to it that made it so much more inspirational. Even I was like, whoa, was that me? <laughs> I, what, what is this? <laughs> but yeah, it was just a lot of, you know, stream of thought. I mean, kind of like our conversation right now, mm -hmm. um, there were some questions asked that kind of prompted me to wax about, you know, what, what inspires me and, and what our purpose is in, in this life. And that's kind of the ultimate question for me personally. Um, so yeah, it didn't, it wasn't difficult to, to make the video in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just pulling out what I feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel like there's a lot of opportunities to employ creative storytelling in the work that you're doing? I think in this country, a lot of times we talk about this really firm divide between the STEM field and the arts field. What was it like to fuse those two things together in making this project? Or is it something that naturally happens? Yeah, well, that's why I love talking about STEAM and not necessarily STEM. Art is very important. Even in my day-to-day -day work, if you are a scientist and you're doing groundbreaking groundbreaking work, it doesn't matter if you can't communicate it to your customers, to the people who fund your effort. And so the importance of storytelling and creative arts uh, influences, that is pivotal to really communicating what we're doing and why it's important. Because if nobody knows the, the impact of what you're doing, it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, it does in a sense, but it's our duty to take that effort and take the time to communicate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You want people to feel involved and understood. And, yeah. and like you said, that it's not just about, um, yeah, it's, it's about being able to communicate to so many different parties. Yeah. Um, that's super interesting. And it comes in handy too, just speaking to colleagues. If you can't translate your concept just to the, per to another scientist, I mean, there are a lot of us that need help in articulating what we're doing, just person to person beyond that, that is already a problem mm. right, if you can't do that. Um, so yeah, I think on many levels, we, the science community need help in communicating better to peers and the public. Yeah. Do you think that as an American society or even, you know, within the many communities in which you intersect, mm -hmm. um, do you feel like people are really open to discovery or do you feel like a resistance when you start talking about the work that you're doing and trying to expand people's minds? Because the things that you're tackling are quite literally so much bigger than us. Yeah. Well, it's interesting is what I, what I say in the video is everyone has this fear. Like I have a fear too. When you cross into the unknown, sometimes you're just afraid of change. Uh, and I know myself, I mean, I could point out my own flaws where I would hear an idea and it's like, no, this is completely different. I doubt it's right. And mm -hmm. when you sit down and you think about it and you put aside your fear and your ego, then you can really be open to the change. And I think that translates to well beyond uh, science to society is change is scary and hard sometimes. And you have to put that aside, your ego and your fear aside and really listen and be open to it. It's such a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's so many moments of just a day to day where yeah. you, you hit an obstacle and you're like, well, wrapping it up for the yeah. day. <laughs> and we're all human and it happens and it's okay. But if you just recognize those elements, then you can kind of make yourself a little bit better. I wonder on the note of ego and just by virtue of how long you've been doing the work that you've been doing. Do you ever find yourself, this feels really silly, but do you ever find yourself like thrill seeking where you're like, I need to find the next level up because I want to just like push these boundaries and like, you know, embark on this new thing. As far as my thrill seeking today, it's more about looking at other people. I feel like I'm established enough 
in my place, uh, in my place of occupation where now I'm starting to look at other people and my thrill seeking is how do I push the boundaries to help others? Not that I've been selfish the entire time, not that I've been just looking out for myself, but in a lot of my goal setting, it's just, okay, what do I want to do in five years and 10 years? And now I'm slowly thinking, what do I want to do for other people in five years and 10 years? How do I want to build some brand or, or some legacy where I'm bringing people in and and evening the the playing field in my own way. So that's kind of my thrill seeking is like, how do I shake things up? Mm, Yeah. I've been obsessed with the last year of uh, this mantra of moving away from loneliness. Mm, I think there's so many spaces, especially as black women that we find ourselves and you look around the room and you're like, well, it's just me. (laughs) And so how can I shake it up in a way that is in the best interest of the work that's being done, right? Like I think we all benefit when no one in the room feels lonely and everyone in the room feels challenged in these ways. And we're selling ourselves short when we're not doing that work. That's a fantastic point. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, yeah. And I don't know. You said it great. (laughs) Something to add. (laughs) Yeah, you did great. Thank you. you. So what traits make a good planetary protection engineer? Ooh, I would say uh, attention to detail. Um, A lot of what you do is on the microbial scale, Um, hundreds of times smaller than a human hair, the width of a human hair. You know, you're looking at microns, um, just extremely tiny things you cannot see that you have to make sure does not travel to another moon or body or does not create harm. So you have to have an attention to detail and attention to how you touch your face. Like when you're in a room, how many times do you touch your face without knowing it and touch something else? You've inadvertently transferred contamination by doing that. And so you have to almost be a germaphobe. I was called a germaphobe yesterday and I would, I always denied it. And yesterday was the first time I actually accepted it. Because you have to really pay attention to where your hands go, where tools go, um, and just ultimately, you know, how these these contaminants migrate. Maybe a germophile. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Thank you. (laughs) Positively obsessed with germs, where they're going, how they're moving, where they're grooving. I love it. I'm stealing that. I I will give you credit, though. (laughs) Because there is something about like, yeah, there, oh, I, I actually wonder this. Is there room for fear? Mm. does it inform the work that you're doing or is it something that you're constantly resisting? Yeah. And there is a good kind of fear, right? There, the reason why we're doing this is the fear that something possibly could go wrong. So that's fear kind of driving us in a positive direction. Uh, We've all seen the movies where there are outbreaks that occur. That's what we want to prevent. Um, So fear could be a, a, a positive thing, a positively driving force, but you still have to approach the problem with information and facts and, uh, and really guide the conversation in that way. Yeah. Oh, I love scientists. Yeah. I feel like I spend so much time with artsy types who are like, I feel this. And scientists are like, it is that. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> but I love that intersection too. And scientists are not pure. Uh, there are so many debates that I get into where I'm just like, it's your feeling. It's not fact. <laughs> And sometimes feelings get in the way of really processing um, the, the the data. You have to interpret data and sometimes feelings work their way into it. Uh, and some feelings are good, especially with seasoned, experienced people. Sometimes their gut feeling is just based off of so much data and information in their mind. So that feeling is really kind of a model that they're crunching in their head. 
Um, so feeling does have an influence. No one is perfect. No one is pure. But sometimes I get in fights when feelings <laughs> way too heavily in the conversation. Yeah, it's like, this is your interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, your interpretation comes with 35 years of your experience, uh-huh. but also here is a state point. <laughs> yeah. Just slide that over the table yeah. to you. <laughs> but it's a healthy dialogue, right? I, we all have feelings. We all have biases and we just have to be aware of that. I know that the cosmos was such a big inspiration for you when you were younger. Yes. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about other touch points that kind of motivated you or moved you through, especially with such swiftness through your, your early education. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is my impatience. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Love that. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. Um, I, I went to summer schools while other kids were playing to get math and science credit so that I could just graduate faster not because I needed to, but because I wanted to. Um, so yeah, impatience is one other crux that pushed me forward beyond, you know, Carl Sagan inspiring me from the cosmos. Um, I feel a little bit like Arya Stark in her list, <laughs> but I have a, I had a list of people that I think about less these days, you know, people that really tried to say, well, I don't know why she's so smart or mm-hmm. I'm going to try to just push her to the side. And I kind of use that as fuel to, to move forward. <laughs> It sounds so bad. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I kind of use the, their doubt, not necessarily as, um, not necessarily looking at their negativity, but looking at, okay, there were people of importance in my life as a child that did not really help me to realize my full potential. So let me get to where I need to get to so I can positively inspire somebody else and balance that spirit out there, like balance the forces in the world so that somebody else can actually have support and not the opposite of that, especially as a kid. It's so important as a kid. I mean, I think oftentimes young people, you know, if you're really fortunate, you might have a person who comes to visit your school or you have this encounter. We have two people who are encounter have these public library encounters, which is so great. Love you nerds. (laughs) Um, But these moments that uh, you you feel like you get this propulsion. Like I want to talk about jets, whatever. Um, (laughs) But you get propelled to to move forward. And that that momentum is really beautiful if that's your journey. But I'm also so obsessed with like what happens if there are just more doors. Like Mm. I feel like our duty as people who move through the world is to just continue to lower those barriers where Mm. it's like, I just don't want anyone to work as hard as I did. Yeah, exactly. And, And it's tough too, because in a sense, some of those doors make me feel like that's what motivated me. If I didn't push through that, all of those doors, then I wouldn't prove to myself that I wanted it that bad. But on the other hand, I need for some of these bias doors to be, to disappear. I need for some doors that are just unnecessary to go away. Um, so yeah, I think that the struggle is part of who we are, but we don't have to struggle. Like the struggle does not need to be that difficult. Yeah. Engineering is hard enough. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How does it feel to work in a field where so much is unknown and knowledge maybe is always changing? Mm, that's a, a great question because sometimes I get that thrown in my face. Like, hey, you know, how, how are you standing by this requirement when two years ago it was completely different and five years before that it was completely different? And my explanation is science changes. Science is not stable and stationary in, in a sense. Our, our understanding of how microbes grow and how the environments that they survive in 
constantly changes. So you kind of have to be comfortable with the change and, and defend something new that comes up because, hey, we, we thought of it in the wrong way before. We applied the scientific method and now we see there's a better way to characterize this phenomenon. There were times where scientists would go to the Atacama Desert and they would say, it's so arid, there's no rainfall here, obviously nothing grows in, in this environment. And they were proven wrong. And they know that now it's this vast ecosystem of these extreme microbes that can survive with very little moisture. So it's, it's amazing how things survive and things persist and how our understanding just changes and you have to be okay with that. Why do you think conspiracies related to science and space are so popular right now. Yeah, everybody wants to be the expert. (laughs) (laughs) And what is scary about a lot of the pseudoscience floating around is you just need to know a couple buzzwords and then put it together with things that don't make sense and you sound like you know what you're doing. Mm. Uh, And it's, it's very dangerous. And that's why even when I speak to other people or when I'm uh, giving lectures, I try to stick to my own field because they could easily say, oh, she's a scientist and she's talking about something that I have no background in. Please do not take it as fact. (laughs) You know, it's, it's very dangerous when you speak outside of your discipline without the knowledge. So you have to be clear, you have to have the caveats. Um, And yeah, it's just make sure you know who you're getting your information from. That's all I have to say. It's like, make sure the source is legitimate before you take that and carry it and throw it around uh, and spread that misinformation. Yeah, I think it's, it's also great too, to see the work that you're doing in the media space where it's like, you're coming in as like a good cop on science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's why I try to keep it like very general, like basic science. Like here are some things that I know I can speak to, and this will hopefully arm you to investigate yourself and, and get the right sources and the right information from the right sources so that you can really grow as a scientist and, and, you know, do your own investigating without going down the, the YouTube, <laughs> many YouTube levels of being in some weird conspiracy land. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> the earth, not yeah. flat. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say it again for the people in the back. Right. <laughs> I think in this moment, we're having so many conversations about the earth. We're having so many conversations about climate. And I wonder how that impacts the work that you're doing, especially because of your role as a protection engineer. Yeah. How, how does the work that's going on on the ground here impact the work that you're doing beyond? Yeah. Um, it's really sad, uh, to see there, there's a community of people on earth where they're like, well, let's fine. We're going to terraform Mars. So even if we mess it up here on earth, we have another place to go to. And that is not accurate. The, the effort of terraforming another planet, including Mars is tremendous. And you have to do some really drastic and insane things for it to be anywhere close to livable for humans. So the big ultimate lesson there is take care of our planet. This is the only thing that we have. Our little blue orb, our little blue marble is all that we have. And the more we learn about climate change and what has happened to other planets and other moons really focuses or allows you to realize that what we have is so precious and we should really protect what we have here on earth. Love. (laughs) Do you think there's another field of study or activity or, you know, space for exploration that helps you or could in general help you um, to be a better scientist than you are today? Ooh, I would say philosophy. Um, There's a lot of 
reasoning and understanding and processing through complex data that I think understanding the theories of different philosophers and how they process where we are in this world, like from a, from a philosophy perspective, uh, really does help you interpret, well, what is this data? Uh, how, how does it apply to different moons and bodies? And how, how do we look at the long-term effects? And I think philosophy would in turn help me to be, or, you know, taking more classes would help me to be a better reasoner uh, and reason my way through a lot of the um, data that I see and a lot of the interactions that I have with people. And I'm sure you could list a thousand, but I wonder if there are any other black scientists that you think deserve our attention. Oh man, so many. I mean, everybody knows about Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, but there are local people that, there's someone that I work with that is is so dear to my heart, like Tracy Drain. She is an engineer um, that is just so inspirational to me. She's so positive and I know she's been through a lot and she doesn't talk about it, (laughs) but I know she's been through a lot just being a young black female engineer. Um, and yeah, I think she's, she's one of my heroes, heroes, um, as a scientist, who's a leader in her field. Um, and yeah, makes things happen for her, not only herself, but people around her. She, she's the ultimate connector, um, and inspires kids all the time. So yeah, she's my hero. So a lot of your job is thinking beyond going big, so many galaxies, mm-hmm. light years, the yep. whole, the whole shebang. <laughs> Where is your favorite place on earth? Ooh, that's a really good question. My favorite place on earth, my home. No, no, <laughs> without the mushy stuff. Um, shoot. That's a really good, oh, what is my favorite place? My, my work, and this sounds so lame, but where I work, <laughs> every time I drive into work, I, I mean, I, I had goals growing up and to drive to a place that I've dreamed about working all my life is kind of, it's weird to just stop and say, by the way, this is a dream come true. I'm still doing this. Like, don't be jaded or comfortable or you know, don't forget the fact that this was a big struggle as a kid. And this is the ultimate dream come true. And I'm here and don't forget it. And on that same note, doing the work that you're doing for as long as you've been doing it in the preparation work that went into it, how do you avoid burning out or, or what does self-care look like as a scientist? Cause it, I imagine there's a sense of urgency at all yeah, times. Definitely. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, depending on the lifetime of uh, whatever you're working on. I mean, there could be crunch times where, you know, I don't have time to do anything except for work and sleep and, uh, and maybe eat. <laughs> so yeah, it's, how do I prevent being burned out? I think it's just staying grounded to what I feel ultimately is important. And if I don't feel like this is important, I wouldn't put my heart and my sweat, blood and tears into it. And I do feel like it's important and I still, and I value what I, what I do. And so that's how I don't get burned out. As soon as I start feeling like what I'm doing doesn't matter and I'm losing touch, that's when I start feeling burned out. Uh, I can do all kinds of all-nighters and push through if I feel like I have a purpose. This is the part of the show where we give Hulu subscribers a chance to ask you their own set of questions after watching Your Attention Please, now streaming on Hulu. Our first question is from Aaliyah from North Carolina. Is it recommended to earn at least a master's degree to work for NASA? 
I would recommend, depending on what you want to do, if you want to be um, a professor, I'd say, yes, go for your PhD. But one thing that I've noticed uh, as a scientist, as an engineer in many companies is that it really matters your passion matters the most as far as what you bring to the table, your experience, and not necessarily your degrees. Where I work currently, there are people that are sitting at the board table, putting in their ideas that have no more than a high school education, people with bachelor's degrees, people with master's degrees, and people with PhDs. So don't think that your degree is a a barrier in a sense, but know that there are organizations where they do use it as a ceiling. So I would say, think about what you want to do ultimately and see whether or not degrees help the PhD or a master's helps, or if they're looking more at experience and your, your global perspective. Our next question is from Lenny from New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. Yeah, same. I'm also from Jersey. Yay! Yay. <laughs> How do you feel about Space Force? Oh, next question. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I, I have the same answer for, for uh, people who ask about, uh, what do you think of SpaceX and Elon Musk? And do you think it's a con- competition? And I say, no, it's not a competition. We're, we all work together. And I love any excuse for people to, to be aware of space. I'll put it like that. If, you, if Space Force gives you more awareness and attention to, oh, there are things going out in space. Let me research more. What kind of things, what kind of defense-related topics you would need within the Space Force? Well, okay, then that kind of achieves my goal of you have more awareness. So I, I like putting it positively in that sense. What do I think of Space Force? I love any excuse that gets people looking to the stars. And our last question comes from Geiler or maybe Gaylor from Azerbaijan. Have you ever thought that there might be civilizations advanced enough to hide themselves in the cosmos? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I think if there was some civilization out there, I doubt they would want to hide themselves from us because the ability to make contact with another civilization is incredible. And we know based on some of the observations of what exoplanets are nearby, that the closest one is still going to be so far away. (laughs) And we maybe will make contact, but like from maybe radio waves or, or, you know, electromagnetically. But as far as meeting people, I don't know. I I think that's probably not going to happen. We need the interplanetary barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) Who's bringing potato salad? (laughs) No, I don't know. I I mean, maybe if they saw some of the things that happened in our society, they may want to hide themselves, but I don't think scientifically they would want to hide themselves. (laughs) So this part is really fun. Okay. What I'd like you to do for the next two minutes-ish is talk about something that you've been thinking a lot about. This is a a part of the segment where you can just sound off things you're obsessed with, things that you want people to hear, a message that you want to leave behind. Um, Go. Yeah. It's funny because growing up and going through um, different scientific disciplines, one thing that I am trying to combat is people that feel like they need to advance by stepping on other people. And I want to project to other people, like other women and other scientists, men and women, but especially to women that like, hey, you, you can do this. You stay true to who you are, whoever that is, and fight for your space and fight for your ability to be you um, and be a powerful you and be a leader you and be a boss you. 
and you have to not sacrifice who you are um, to to make things work and to make things happen. Hopefully this inspires somebody or, or resonates with someone out there that's in any field that's not necessarily science or engineering or aerospace where you're struggling and you're sitting and thinking to yourself, how do how do I reach these the the audience that I'm trying to reach? And do I have to sacrifice who I am to to make that happen? And the answer is no, there's a way where you can stay true to who you are and um, stay your authentic self and still achieve what you need to achieve. And it might be a little bit uh, naive and it may be too rose colored, but that's cool. Can't break me down. I think one of the most exceptional things about sitting down with Mujigate today was learning about how inspired she is by her team and how inspired and purposeful her life is. I think oftentimes it's easy to look at someone with Mujige's impressive and illustrious career and think about all of the difficulties in it. But hearing her speak from the space of inspiration and optimism really makes me feel supercharged. Mujige's energy is so infectious, so bright, and it's great to know that especially in the space of thinking about the future and thinking about things in the great beyond that there are people who can quite literally represent the human race who have such a brightness and levity and optimism in the work that they're doing during today's conversation we had a brief chat about what would happen if we encountered life forms on other planets and other galaxies and i'd really like mujige to be our ambassador what i find to be so interesting in the ways in which we kind of are socialized around space or socialized around space travel or any level of things that we see represented in the media and movies, there is this incredible distance that I think is built out. Space literally feels so far away, so vast and so impossible. And I think the thing that's most interesting about Mujige is that without removing any of the complications, she grounds it in a way that makes it feel really tactile. Her rigor, her hard work, her commitment to the work that she's doing makes it seem so much more possible than I ever could have imagined. I remember growing up and being like, maybe I want to be an astronaut and then getting dissuaded in all of these different ways. And I just wonder for so many people what it would be like to know about Mujige and to hear the work that she's doing and the way that she's doing it. But I really hope that anyone who's at home or on their way home or anywhere in this universe that gets to hear this interview, that they leave it feeling inspired to do the work that they want to do. Mujige is so brilliant in that she's not saying you too have to be in this work of protecting the planet. Uh, What she's saying is that it's so important that you find your place in the world and that you work your hardest to make sure that you're achieving your dreams. That's all we have for you today, but we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, don't be afraid to find out what you love. Share it with the world and scream from the mountaintop your attention, please.